to The Green Rush, a podcast about the business of cannabis. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg talk with the CEOs, politicians, and cultural icons driving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Ann and Lewis speak with Taylor West, Senior Communications Director for Conibus, a marijuana industry branding and marketing company. Taylor is also the former Deputy Director of the National Cannabis Industry Association. As you probably know, The Green Rush is part of the MJ Today media family of podcasts, which includes shows like Marijuana Today, where Taylor appears as one of our longtime regulars. By the way, if you're not listening to Marijuana Today or Marijuana Today Daily, you really should. It's a great compliment to The Green Rush. But before we get into our discussion with Taylor, we have friend of The Green Rush, Alan Brockstein, founder of New Cannabis Ventures and the 420 Investor app, catching us up on things he thinks we should all be paying better attention to. Don't sit back, lean forward. And now, on to the show. So before we get to our interview today with um, Taylor West, uh, we have uh, our another returning champion, a, a longtime friend of the pod, Alan Brockstein, founder of New Cannabis Ventures and the amazing 420 Investor app. Alan, as you all know, is the voice of the retail investor. So, AB, what's the big story that's undercovered? What should we all be paying attention to? Yeah, well, first, let me say it's always an honor to be part of this, and especially with Taylor West to follow. Yeah, she's awesome. So, uh, I think one of the really interesting stories, uh, I'm worn out. Today, uh, we're taping this on uh, at the end of earnings season, and uh, I have to say I'm totally exhausted. You may not hear it in my voice, but uh, in some ways, I'm kind of agitated because I'm, I'm trying to catch up, and I'm a little bit embarrassed, uh, but it's just not humanly possible. So uh, part of the big story is just how many companies are reporting massive revenue. But the, the part of the story I want to hone in on today is uh, kind of a new trend. And I've been following the space for five and a half years. And, uh, you know, we're starting to see conference calls, which is really nice. I know you guys are really busy with that, Lewis, as part of that. But the part that really stands out is guidance. And uh, there's been a, a few uh, cases of guidance uh, over the years. And uh, oftentimes a company would put up guidance. It was just a handful. Uh, and then they would stop doing it in the future uh, for whatever reason. And I would note that the Canadian LPs have never given guidance, which is a little bit annoying because uh, it's, a, it's a way to measure companies. And, uh, you know, they don't have to just uh, give uh, revenue guidance. They could give margin guidance, all sorts of guidance. But uh, retail investors and institutional investors do like to see revenue guidance. And so the thing I think people are missing is that we have some companies that are willing to put some big numbers out there. And uh, I hope I'm not skipping any, but the three that we learned about uh, since I spoke to you last, uh, and both of these are in the last two weeks, have been uh, TrueLeaf, CuraLeaf, which I believe is a client of, of yours, if I'm not mistaken, and Kushko, which is a client of yours. So these three companies, hey, maybe, Lewis, you guys are advising them to do this. I don't know. We are. You are. Okay. So uh, just for the, the listeners, the, the numbers are quite impressive, and they're so big that they need explanation, and I think that's the part that's really of value. I mean, anybody <laughs> can put a number out there, and I've been seeing these presentations for the last few years about these companies that have zero revenue and they're going to do a billion or whatever it is. I'm exaggerating, but you know, these hockey stick type of numbers, but 
they're very hard to uh, have faith in. And so all three of these companies, I think, have done a reasonable job of not only uh, giving the guidance. And uh, off the top of my head, I think Kushko was 110 to 121 uh, 110 to 120 million after generating uh, 52 million this year. Uh, Curaleaf, uh, 400 million next year with 100 million in EBITDA. So they were the only ones that gave that additional item. And then TrueLeave, uh, well, they have it on their site and they just said refer to it. Uh, and I don't know if it's updated, but I, I believe 214 million. Uh, they actually have 214.3 million to be precise uh, for next year. And that's just in Florida. And so it wasn't only so much that these companies had the confidence uh, to, to share their forecasts, and obviously they're just forecasts, but I appreciated that each of these companies, I thought, did a reasonable job of explaining how they're going to get there. So I think that's the big story, and it uh, reflects uh, the evolution of, of the sector and how cannabis companies are becoming more normalized. That was fantastic, as per usual. Um, and Alan, we will put links to both New Cannabis Ventures and 420 Investor app in the show notes. And we'll talk again in a couple weeks. Thanks a lot, Lewis. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. I am happy to be here. So we first met a couple weeks ago in Las Vegas at the Marijuana Today kind of all-star podcast that Shay put together. Uh, and by, by the way, side note to our listeners, if you haven't actually listened to that show, um, you really should. And we'll put a link to it in our show notes. Um, and while Ann and Nick and I you know, were a part of that panel, we felt so outclassed by everybody else. I mean, you guys are all these these lions in um, in the history of the the cannabis legalization movement and you are a pioneer and you guys were all so nice to to us I and mean, we felt like posers um and it's been really cool to be a part of the the marijuana today family and i know ann and i are have been very much forward looking forward to this conversation well me too and if it makes you feel any better i actually don't consider myself in the same class as several of the other regulars on that podcast you know i i guess I've been in the industry now for almost five whole years, which is a lifetime in cannabis, I guess. But some of those folks have been working on the front lines um, for much longer than that. And I am always excited and proud to be able to sit alongside them and, and like you, benefit from their experience. Yeah, it was an awesome conversation when both Lewis and I looked at each other like we don't belong here. But and we, and I wish I had a notebook like I wish I was taking notes when like, you know, both Chris's were talking and you were talking and, all, you know, it just was an amazing show. So definitely download it if you haven't um, had the time to listen to it yet. But before we get into um, what you're doing now, Taylor, you have a really deep and interesting background um, in drug policy reform. Can you take us through that and maybe that will cover your cannabis resume? Yeah, sure. Um, so the, my very first kind of uh, interactions with drug policy started um, Oddly enough, when I was in high school, uh, I got very interested out of the blue in the concept of um, what are uh, syringe exchange programs, essentially HIV prevention through syringe exchange for intravenous drug users. Honestly, it was one of these. I heard an NPR story and the concept seemed so such an obvious uh 
smart public policy move to me as a you know super worldly 17 year old <laughs> um, that I got a little obsessed with it and um, so after my freshman year of college I wanted to intern with an organization that that dealt with issues like that and kind of stumbled across an organization called the Drug Reform Coordination Network uh, or DRC net it's now called stop the drug org and um, Dave Borden is the the founder and and the head, and Dave is doing amazing work these days, uh, especially on international drug policy and how the U.S. Uh, and the U.N. Um, interact with the drug policy things that are happening here in the states. Um, but anyway, that was an amazing experience for me that I I got to dive into all of these issues around drug policy. And then on top of that, one of my fellow interns was a guy named Chris Lotlicker. Um, for folks who are familiar with sort of larger drug policy movement, Chris is one of the co-founders of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. I was around when that was conceived. I cannot claim any um, substantive uh, contribution to that effort, but I certainly uh, remember it coming together and uh, being so impressed by folks like Chris and our producer Shay and others who... Um, the two tallest men in cannabis. Oh, my God. <laughs> and since I am one of the shortest women in cannabis, you two um, are, are a little tough for me to be around. But uh, but uh, that was kind of my uh, entree into issues around drug policy, advocates around drug policy. And then I kind of left it for a while. Um, I got into more general politics. Uh, I started working on campaigns um, starting in the sort of early 2000s. Spent a few years in my 20s. Uh, really just traveling around to work on whatever campaign I could find uh, and got um, some amazing experiences that way. I worked on campaigns in Georgia and Virginia and Iowa and Colorado. Um, and I like to tell people that I am so glad that I did that and so glad that I am not doing it anymore. <laughs> well, it's funny. I think you and I share a similar disorder. It's, it's PTSD. It's political right. traumatic stress disorder. Exactly. I, I, I worked in the Senate um, for a senator for a couple of years as his state press secretary, and I did campaigns, and I will never, ever do that again. Um, <laughs> I love politics, but I, it's like an arm's length thing. Like, you guys stay over there. I'm going to stay over here. I'm going to shake my head and write some checks and we'll call it even. <laughs> um, but but your history in politics is really interesting. Um, and, and you have used it to help shape the the way that, that drug policy has happened and the legalization, the cannabis legalization movement has, has progressed. What's been the most surprising thing about this whole journey for you? You know, when you look at where we are today and you look back and you're like, how the hell did we get here? Like, what what has like caused you the biggest head scratching moment? You know, I think in some ways the the thing that if I really take a step back and look at it, the thing that's most surprising is truly how quickly everything suddenly changed. Um, and that isn't to say that there wasn't a tremendous amount of work uh, before that moment because there was. It didn't just a switch didn't just flip. And in fact, that whole two hour podcast that we recorded in Vegas spends a lot of time talking about the work that went into uh, that moment that seemed like an overnight success. Um, but still, even so, um, you know, every other sort of public policy uh, situation in the last few years has largely been defined by 
uh, increasing partisanship, increasing conflict, and lack of movement. And cannabis policy is one of the few areas where we've actually seen folks from both parties finding some common ground. We've seen positive movement forward. And, you know, it's also a great example of an issue that is being powered by people and voters ahead of elected officials, uh, which is also an awesome thing to see. It doesn't happen nearly as often as it should these days. So uh, do you think that that is reflective of the issue or do you think that it's actually more reflective of where the country is and that politicians are much more divided because of who they are or are they reflecting what the real will of the country is? You know, I think it's a little bit of a combo. Certainly one of the most important dynamics is popular opinion and the way it's changed around cannabis legalization. Uh, and there are lots of factors that that play into that, including very successful efforts on the part of advocates who have you know, crafted a message that works and worked extremely hard to educate people out of the propaganda that we were all bombarded with um, over the last several decades. Um, So that's been an incredible piece of work that has resulted in in an amazing amount of progress. Um, I think it's also uh, the case that um, the messaging has found a way to appeal to uh, to philosophies from both parties. And this is this is kind of where I think my political background uh, has been a, a cool foundation for me as I have moved back into the cannabis space is as I was beginning to work in cannabis at the beginning of 2014, uh, I really saw and did my part to the extent that I could to encourage a movement toward talking about cannabis as a... Um, federalist issue as a independent liberty issue uh, and that was where we started to see an incredible amount of progress on the republican side of the aisle uh, where you could start to pick off republican members who finally who really didn't weren't super committed to the idea of prohibition but didn't feel like they had a safe place to land where they wouldn't be tagged as soft on crime or or otherwise you know going against social conservatives um, this this space that was not about progressive values and liberalism so much as it was about uh, small government and states' rights um, really gave them a safe platform to, to stand on, and that made a huge difference uh, in some of our, our successes in Washington. So, Taylor, if you could um, channel your inner guru for a moment. I know you're not in politics at this moment. Do you have any predictions on what you think is going to happen with the new Congress next year? You know, is there is the States Act going to finally pass? Um, you know, wh- what do you see in your in your crystal ball? So unfortunately, I have to say the most likely scenario is that not a whole lot happens, um, not not just on cannabis, but on everything. Um, I think we're going to see a Congress that is very tied up in conflict. Um, you know, the House is chomping at the bit to start some investigations into the various issues of the Trump administration. Um, the Senate is not going to be incentivized to move forward on bills that are being passed by a Democratic House. The president is not going to be incentivized to sign bills that he sees as giving any kind of victory to Democrats. Um, I don't think he's going to be the president. (laughs) (laughs) There is that possibility. Um, So, you know, as much as 
I and I could be wrong about this, obviously. Um, but but there is certainly a small chance and, and a better chance on cannabis than on many issues that we will see some kind of progress. Um, but it's still a small chance, even given all of the progress that we've made from an ideological standpoint. It's just going to be tough to see anything moving um, in a, a Congress that's so deeply divided right now. So, Lewis, before you hop in, I know you have another question here. We actually, I want to get to what, you know, what you're doing now, um, what, you know, what your day-to-day business is. Tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about what, what Conibus is, namely what's up with the name. Um, <laughs> and because then we have other questions that do involve, you know, uh, states' regulations and, and, and politics. So we'll get back there. But I, tell our viewer, tell our listeners, viewers, do we have viewers? I don't think sure. so. Tell our <laughs> listeners. I hope not. I, I hope, hope, I really, really I hope not. I certainly hope not. Um, tell our listeners about what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so after, um, so I got into cannabis in, at, in early 2014 as the deputy director of the National Cannabis Industry Association. And I was there at NCIA for about three and a half years. And then about a year and a half ago, uh, I decided to kind of jump into a new adventure and I joined a marketing and brand agency. Um, our cannabis focused sort of agency within the agency is Conibus. The parent company, the parent agency is Cone Marketing. So that's what's up with the name. Um, <laughs> we were Cone Marketing. Very clever. And, uh, yes. Um, Cone is based in Denver. And back long before I joined the agency, they began working with cannabis clients here in Colorado, um, starting as early as 2014 when legal adult use sales started in the state. And then after a couple of years of doing that, decided that this was an industry that they really wanted to plant a flag in, uh, make a commitment to, and that led to sort of the, the concept of Conibus um, as, uh, like I said, sort of an agency within the agency that's focused specifically on cannabis clients. Uh, I was familiar with both Cone Marketing and Conibus um, because one, because Cone Marketing has a great reputation within um, Denver just as an overall marketing agency. And then also Conibus because they were members of NCIA and I knew um, you know, that they were making a real commitment to the industry. So um, when I started kind of looking around um, for my next adventure, uh, I reached out to the folks uh, here at Conibus to say, you know, I, I think this agency does incredible work. There's an incredible amount of marketing savvy here and experience. And I have a lot of cannabis industry background that I'd love to combine with your you know, marketing expertise uh, and really help bring Conibus to the next level in terms of, of providing the kind of sophisticated marketing that other industries are accustomed to, but that the cannabis industry is still kind of evolving toward. Um, well, can, can yeah. we talk about that? Because, yeah. the, you know, the cannabis industry is is beset by this really odd regulatory system that, you know, you have the, the federal prohibition at the national level. You have states acceptance generally at, at you know, in 33 states now. Um, and, and but at the local level, there are other like really weird restrictions from a. A marketing perspective when, you know, it, it, the goal for marketing is to tell corporate stories in different ways through different vehicles. What are these guys, what are the plant touching companies doing? What can, what are best practices? You know, like, are you plowing new ground every day or like, 
what 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 are you doing <laughs> yeah no it's a good question and it is one that still remains a bit open-ended uh because things are continuing to evolve uh but there are an incredible amount of challenges like you're talking about um as you said the the a lot of the marketing and advertising regulations go down to the local level so you're really dealing first off with a lot of logistical challenges if you're operating in multiple markets um, you've got different rules depending on where you are it also faces the the industry faces a lot of challenges on the digital front uh, you know the major sources of digital advertising for most industries are cut off to the cannabis industry. Google AdWords will have nothing to do with you. Facebook will not take your money. Um, Instagram you know, keeps Twitter ripping people Instagram. down. Yep. Absolutely. Um, you know, with Instagram, you at least somewhat have an avenue right now through kind of influencers. As long as you're not directly paying Instagram, they seem less concerned about it. But um, it's still, you know, it's still much more difficult um, than any other kind of retail product faces. So, you know, how do we approach that? I think um, some of it depends on your goals. If you are a fairly locally focused, you know, if you're a smaller shop without, you know, multi-market ambitions, then you can focus on kind of local marketing presence. And there are, you know, opportunities in print and um, some broadcast, some radio or, you know, stations you have to serious serious yes yep serious is a big one if you're if you're looking for a national option serious is one of your one of the few frankly um locally like here in the denver area there are local radio stations that will take ads um, but you do have to have them running during times when the demographics have been identified to be a certain percentage adults that sort of thing <clears throat> and the same is true for print publications. Um, they need to be able to show that the majority of their um, readership is of age. Um, so those, you know, those are challenges. But I think in the broader sense, if you're a cannabis company and you're faced with these challenges, um, the, the important thing to realize is that if you build a really strong brand from the start, then the ways that you have to communicate that brand are nearly endless. And while you might not have access to some of the most obvious traditional channels for marketing, the marketing world we're living in now has just uh, so many more opportunities than it once did. I think of it, you know, like everything, distribution of a message has been democratized. You, you don't have to go through official channels anymore for media or for music or for, in this case, marketing. You, know, you have the opportunity to build your own content channels. Um, so, you know, in the general sense for a cannabis company that's looking at their marketing efforts, I think it's critical that you start with a really strong brand and then get your message out there in all the ways that you do have access to, um, even if they don't necessarily match up with what uh, other industries would be doing. Plus, I would imagine it just makes sense for you to, you know, kind of have this the best practices in mind and almost act as if you are a traditional CPG company or, uh, you know, fill in the blank so that when, you know, uh, deregulation or, or rescheduling, it does happen. You've kind of hit the ground running. You've done the hard work before. And now it's just implementing using these new found channels to you. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think the smartest companies out there right now are planning all of their their marketing efforts, their packaging efforts, their product development, their expansion plans, all with a view 
to five or 10 years down the road. And granted, it's a lot easier to do that if you're a company that has capital to work with. And that's a whole other (laughs) challenge within the industry. You know, you've got your few big players that are starting to really build up that capital. But the reality is that a lot of your mid to small companies don't have that kind of upfront money to make these investments with. Still, you, if you're smart, you're looking down the road and seeing that um, the, the companies that will succeed in the long run are the ones who've set themselves up to, to work well with regulation, um, to be nimble, to respond to the fact that regulations are going to be moving around a lot over the next few years. Hopefully they'll eventually stabilize, but you know, look at like Colorado, we're five years in, and every year the legislature changes up regulations in one way or another. Um, so you have to be prepared to to react to those. Uh, and hopefully you're building a strong enough brand um, with the right kind of appeal so that even as the landscape changes, you have that foundation to build from. And as, as you're saying, new channels are going to open up to you. I mean, five years ago, nobody was thinking about influencer networks. You know, the, the, right. the evolution of and when you're talking about an industry that has so many restrictions, um, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think you're going to start to see companies coming up with creative new ways um, to get their message out there. So, you know, again, I, I'm not really giving anyone a great step by step process for doing this. Um, but but the larger point is that if you can start with a strong brand that you have well-defined, you know who you are, you know who your audience is, then you can adjust your tactics as more opportunities open up. Is there a common theme uh, that you hear from clients in new business meetings? Or what? I guess what are the main reasons that brands come to you? For instance, you know, Lewis and I sit in a ton of new business meetings and all of you know, all of them have, you know, the big ask. And we always say, you know, what's your dream headline? What's your dream story? Um, and, and for them, it's, I want to be on CNBC or I want to be in the Wall Street Journal. Do you have, um, uh, you know, uh, what's the main reason that brands are coming to you? Is there a common theme or is, there, or is it just they're, it's too fragmented right now? Well, there's not necessarily a common theme in the same way that there is for sort of the dream PR success. Um, you know, people, when we talk to them about their sort of brand and marketing goals, uh, it, it tends to be focused on you know, sales or expansion. Maybe they're looking to expand into a certain number of markets or they're trying to get into a certain number of dispensaries if they're a product um, or they're trying to hit a certain revenue number if they're a B2B provider, um, which we do a lot of work for. Um so it's not quite the same concrete goal, um, but I do know you know we get a lot of folks who are trying to figure out how to do a digital marketing strategy, um, given that there are so many barriers right now. Um, so that's something that we talk to clients about a lot. And the reality is that there's not a simple solution uh, for as long as as long as Google AdWords isn't taking your money. Um, it's not as easy <laughs> as flipping a switch and you know putting ads up. Um, but there are ways to to boost your organic um, visibility, and and so that's something that we talk to a lot of clients about. The other thing, honestly, that we see quite a bit is companies that have already you know, launched. They they think that they have kind of a brand, but what <laughs> they really have is a name and a logo. 
Um, and then they get down the road with maybe a website or uh, you know some sales collateral, and they can't shake the feeling that 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 those materials don't really reflect who they are. And um, I've had a lot of conversations with potential clients asking them, well, you know, did you go through a brand process? Did you talk about your brand strategy? Did you, you know, work with someone to really dig into what your unique propositions are and what your values as a company are? And in a lot of those cases, they didn't. Um, and not because, not because they, they, they're stupid. It's just... One, it it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of investment, and you know a lot of these companies are really you know starting up from a shoestring. Um, but also, you know, there's there's sometimes a misconception about kind of what a brand consists of. Yeah, I think that's it. I think they don't understand what a brand is because when we talk about brand, it's really simple. It's what is the perception that somebody has of you before they actually encounter you, before they touch it, taste it, feel it, and then after they've encountered you. How do they describe what that was? That's that's ultimately how we describe what a brand is. And I think that plays into the, the challenge that the industry is facing because you've got this tension between courting the new user. How do you court the 45-year-old soccer mom who's never smoked before as well as stay honest and, and authentic to the, the, the long-time user, whether they're... 30 and have been smoking since they're, you know, in high school illegally, or they're 70 and have been smoking since the 60s. You know, how, how do you help your brands or your clients kind of navigate the, you know, the, the tension between the, the normalization of the industry versus its, its historic illicit roots? Yeah, you know, it really depends on who the client is has identified as their target audience. And that's something actually that is an interesting conversation that's going on right now too. You know, for the longest time, obviously there was sort of the cliched understanding of who the cannabis consumer was and it's all the stoner cliches and and that kind of thing. Um, And then you've seen this very dramatic pendulum swing um, with a lot of companies that are, you know, they want to break out of that stereotype, they want to they they're trying to appeal, as you said, to the soccer moms and and that kind of thing. And I think that's great it, it, because there's no question that there is a, a huge potential audience among new or infrequent consumers, um, sort of showing them how this can be a part of their lifestyle. But <laughs> I think, like many things, when the pendulum swings, sometimes it can swing too far. And it's really important that companies coming into the space don't overlook the fact that 80% of their consumer base is still more of a young male audience. Um, now, if you have a product that you think is most appealing to soccer moms and and more you know older or uh, more novice consumers that's totally fine and you can target your marketing at that audience but you need to make sure that there are enough of those people out there that you as a company as a business model can thrive with that being your your main audience um, where I am uh, where I think the bigger brands need to find the room to play is in a brand that is accessible to those sort of novice consumers, more women, um, older consumers. But as you kind of said, still feels authentic to what makes up 
a much larger proportion of the actual consumer base. You know, the, the, one of the things that I think maybe doesn't come through when we talk about the demographics of who cannabis consumers are is while there are definitely uh, a lot of consumers who do not fit the demographic stereotype of, you know, the, the old style cannabis consumer, um, your heavy consumers are still buying way more uh, even if, you know, in numbers there are fewer of them than there used to be um, as a proportion of the market, they are still the ones who are making the lion's share of the purchases and you sort of ignore that market at your peril. Are there brands either inside or outside of cannabis that you really look up to? Like we, you know, we really dig what, what Candescent is doing and, and what Adrian Sedlin, kind of how he's decided to go about um, you know, putting brand so um, front and center um, in his strategy, or maybe give us a brand in the cannabis industry that's really killing it, or one brand outside of it. I guess how do, who are the brands you think that are that are just making it work? Yeah, I mean, Candescent's such a great example, and I, you know, I he gets mentioned, Adrian gets mentioned in this context all the time, and for good reason. You know, he really. He he made the investment in the development of his brand um, before really many other companies in the space were doing that, and and his brand is a great example of how a brand is is built on great aesthetics and great design, but that's not the only part of it. Uh, you know, he's also been um, kind of at the forefront in. Uh, talking about the qualities of his products um, and getting away from some of the jargon and the strain names and things like that that can be really disorienting for um, newer consumers. Well, that strain name issue is one that has been something that has driven us nuts yeah. f- all the time. Um, and it's funny because, you know, you talk to, you know, our, our job in the industry is to talk to reporters, you know, um, and to communicate you know, brand stories to the to reporters. Um, do you think it's inauthentic to to not embrace some of the language that undergirds the the industry? I mean, you know, we always cringe when we see reporters write about weed or pot or <laughs> right. you know getting stoned. But is that just is that just us trying to be too precious? Should we just not admit what we are? I don't think so, and. I think partly it's because we are still trying to dig cannabis out from the most harmful cliches and stereotypes. And so if we're erring a little on the side of sophistication and away from uh, slang, it's for that reason. Um, You know, it's to elevate the the overall concept of the industry and um, really push back on what has been decades and decades of those sort of counterculture cultural stereotypes. Um, I do think there's a way to talk to cannabis consumers that's not stuffy and stodgy. You know, it is a fun uh, product. It can be, you know, and... and it, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> and Come on, let's admit it. Exactly. You know, you know we, it's all the social justice stuff is vital, all the, the, the you know, the, the money and it's all, but, it, you know, it, 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 it's actually a lot of fun. Yeah. And, it, you know, and it has a social element to it that I think is important for us not to lose sight of. Um, but I think there there is kind of that middle ground. I, I honestly think from a 
as the market moves forward, I think strain names are going to become less and less uh, of a uh, of a guiding factor for people. Um, I don't know that they'll necessarily go away completely, but uh, they're probably going to be relegated to you know the really um, the folks who really like to kind of geek out over their cannabis. Um, but even in that scenario, you know, the science is starting to show us that strain names really don't mean a whole lot. They uh, are bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and even the the sort of indica um, sativa breakdown, it doesn't mean a whole lot either. Um, and these are ways that you know, people for forever have been classifying cannabis, and they're not completely illegitimate but now that we're able to do so much more with the analysis and the research and the science um, and the the technology that's now in the industry um, we don't necessarily have to rely on on what is kind of an outdated and genetically inaccurate system it's it's it, it drives me nuts and <laughs> uh, I mean it just does it, it's because it's not it is do you have on. to disclose it though? Like, do you have? And I, this is a question I, I have no idea. Like, so if if you're a farmer and you're growing, insert crazy name, purple haze, Kush, whatever. Like, do you have to say that on your brand that that's what is in that? Or I guess Adrian doesn't do that, right? Lewis? Yeah, no. I mean, I mean, or Taylor. No, yeah. he has he he does it by effect, like right? the feeling, right? right? Yeah. Well, and there's okay. also a big difference between infused products, extracts, those kinds of things, where you could have a you know a, quite a mix, a mishmash, of, yeah, right. um, versus flour. You know, if someone is buying flour, they you know at this point typically are going to want to know what the strain is, um, and to a certain extent, that that will probably continue, but I would expect brands to start kind of developing their own, if not strains, then you know, product lines that don't necessarily conform to the old strain designation system. Um, but you know, when you're talking about flour, it is a it, it's a single uh, source product. When you're talking about um, Extracts and pre-rolls and infused products, edibles, those kinds of things. Uh, increasingly, you know, the the folks who are making those, not only are you using potentially a mishmash of, of different plants, but they're also working with the various uh, compounds within the, the extract and kind of manipulating those um, through the extract process so that, you know, it, the strain itself becomes much less relevant even than it is uh, when you're talking about an individual flower. Um, so, you know, we're at that the towards the end um, of the conversation, um, and it's all it's been really awesome. Um, actually, before we do, while while you were sleeping, I, I want to go back to the very beginning of our conversation um, when we were talking about that that panel that we did. Um, there was a moment where Chris Crane went through, you know, the history of the legalization um, movement. And it really struck me when he was talking about that, about how long this process took. I mean, we're talking 30 plus years from the point that it, that it really started to tip towards us. Um, you were involved in, you know, both in depth and, and from the outside looking in. 
but before you were involved, when you were doing politics and watching this, were you watching it going, these guys are really smart for taking this incremental approach? Or were you thinking, God, they're just dumb. They, they, it, you know, which, which side were you thinking was the right way to do it? So I tend to fall more on the incrementalism side, um, which puts me not as far down the, the scale on the activism side. Um, but that's why I worked in politics, right? That's, that's kind of, <laughs> you, ha- you have to be willing to kind of to get things done. Yeah, right? well, and you have to, you have to be willing to accept small uh, change as you go because otherwise you'll make yourself crazy. Um, No, I actually, watching that from the outside, you know, watching that as a political professional, uh, and I mentioned this a little bit on that earlier podcast, I watched the messaging evolve uh, from one that was very uh, activist-focused and very um, kind of uh, almost protester-focused into one that was very smart and sophisticated and understood how to reach people who were not automatically going to be on your side. Um, And that's, you know, that is a a complicated process. And always there are things that get lost when you move from sort of pure activism into a certain amount of pragmatism and willingness to compromise. But uh, that willingness to compromise really did move the needle. Um, the willingness to put initiatives on the ballot that had certain um, either restrictions or um, not giveaways, but but incentives to law enforcement and things like that. Um, it really did make a difference. And um, once you are successful with one of those initiatives, then the the snowball kind of builds. And, and we've seen that over the last few years as um, as public opinion has changed and initiatives have been successful uh, across the country. Let's stick with the guru. Go back to that for a second. Um, when do when do we see federal um, complete rescheduling or or legalization is the wrong word but you know when do we see where the federal government says okay we're completely out of this we have yeah you know that's this question comes up a lot and I'm always loath to put a specific sort of time period on it because god knows none of us would have predicted it uh to have moved to where it is today um so I think the the route that it happens I think is through essentially descheduling, like you're talking about, you know, basically the federal government washing their hands of it and saying the states can decide how they want to handle cannabis. Um, you know, though there is legislation that would do that right now um, that has been introduced in um, in the House and Senate and you know, could at any point get passed. I, I don't anticipate that happening as quickly as, you know, this session. Um, I think... Oh, if I have to, if I, if I'm forced to put a number on it, I'm going to say three years from now. And even that might be a little optimistic. Um, We might see something like medical um, go before the full um, descheduling. I, I'm not sure. Um, But that's the route that I, we're not going to hold you to it. I know. And it's terrible. I'm sorry. I'm like talking around in circles about it. We're not going to hold you to it. We are so holding you to this. (laughs) So in three years from this day, if it's not legal, we're calling you out. Yeah, come to me. You are so going to get it. Oh, man.
So we've been talking a lot about you know this intersection of marketing and 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 regulation and when when legalization is going to happen. Um, and we're now at the end of the show, and I want to kind of maybe wrap all this together. Um, we have a segment called where, where we end was called why you were sleeping, where we ask our guests to say, what is the thing we're missing? Like, what is the media missing? What is, how, we, how are we as a culture? Not, what are we not paying attention to or talking to about in cannabis? So what would you Taylor? What would you say? What are we, what are we missing while we're asleep? Well, one of the things that I think is really important for both the, the sort of marketing world around cannabis for cannabis companies and then for cannabis consumers is to really start thinking hard about how we are talking about this um, as a society and especially to kids. Um, you know, obviously from a marketing standpoint, we don't want to be talking to kids about it at all. <laughs> but from a, you know, from a family perspective, I think we can look at some mistakes that have been made in our culture, especially American culture, around alcohol and the way that we, in the past at least, have not really had uh, candid conversations with our kids about it. Um, and it's led to this sort of toxic um, approach to alcohol where a lot of kids are just never never really exposed to it in a healthy way when they're younger. And I don't mean a healthy way like a healthy way of drinking it, but in a, uh, you know, in an environment where there are modeled um, approaches to moderate drinking and, and how it can be a part of a social setting without being, uh, without taking things over. And then they head to college and then we end up with, you know, these, these insane situations where uh, kids are going crazy and not having any sense of how to responsibly consume. Um, I don't want to see us make similar mistakes uh, when it comes to cannabis. And I think um, you've started to see some good moves in that direction. Colorado, for instance, has a responsible, um, not responsible consumption, but a responsible approach to cannabis uh, marketing campaign of their own for the state that talks to parents and to kids um, somewhat candidly, at least um, as candidly as you can expect from a, a state marketing campaign. Uh, and I think that we need to, to continue to look for opportunities to teach kids about it without you know, going to the extremes of, of something like the, the propaganda we all got from the D.A.R.E. program, but without downplaying the fact that, you know, there are risks involved, especially for younger people, and that they need to, you know, take responsibility for um, reducing those risks if they are um, moving towards consuming. That's great. Taylor, thank you so much. This conversation has been awesome. We hope you'll come back. I really appreciate you guys having me on. Um, please check out Taylor's work at conabis.com, C-O-H-N-N-A-B-I-S.com. We'll stick a link in the show, uh, show notes. Um, and you can always find her popping in to the Marijuana Today podcast, which is also equally awesome. Um, as for us, uh, if you want to chat with us, find us on Instagram and Twitter with the handle KCSA underscore cannabis or drop Lewis some hate mail at greenrush at kcsa.com. Hate mail! And don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. Oh, and by the Thanks way, again, Taylor, Taylor, three years from now, we are so holding you to what you just said. <laughs> Marking my calendar. Indeed. Let us all hope that uh, my optimistic projection is right. Love it. That was one take, Shay. One take.
Cannabis! Cannabis! <laughs>